We have been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time now, and we are in chapters 24 and 25. And chapter 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse because that's where a question is asked by the disciples about the end times. They want to know what's going on. They have their own idea about the kingdom. And they see what Jesus is doing, and they start kind of computing and, and remembering things that they've been taught, remembering things that they read in God's Word. And they realize that the kingdom is at hand and Jesus is the Messiah. The kingdom of God has come to earth. And in their minds, that means things are going to really start happening. So they kind of want to know what their place is. And they ask him a question. His answer to this question turns out to be the longest answer that Jesus gives in Scripture to any question. And it's just called the Olivet Discourse or Teaching on the Mount of Olives. That's where it was delivered. So Jesus is teaching them about the end times. And there will be signs, and signs are important. There are things that we can look for so that we're not completely caught off guard. But I trust that you found so far that the main crux of his teaching, it's just is the shepherd wanting to care for his disciples' souls. He, he's, he's warning them about what not to fall for. There's false teachers that talk about the end times. There's a lot of temptation during the end times. So he's really shepherding their hearts. He's preparing them. He doesn't want them to be so alarmed that they just freeze and shrink up and find a hole to live in. He doesn't want them to be naive so that they just believe anything. And so he's caring for their hearts here about the end times. And what we've learned is that if we haven't learned anything, be ready. That's one of the main teachings that Jesus has. Not so much about... Don't miss the signs or you won't make it into heaven. You've got to really study. It's your heart needs to be ready. And the way that your heart is ready is that you worship the king. That you've paid allegiance to the king. That you've repented of your sins and given your life to him in service. That's how we're ready. But it's a little more detailed than that. Christ is coming back. To support his teaching on how to prepare a heart to be ready, what's involved, what does it look like as we're waiting for the second coming of Christ? And by the way, that's what we're doing right now, in essence. We're gathering as the body of Christ, as his people that have been called out of the world into the kingdom. And, and one of the things, as you listen to his word preached, as you sing together, as you labor in the Sunday school classrooms, that's all part of waiting for the Lord. And so we're waiting. Jesus offers two parables. Some people say three, and we'll look at all of them. To help us understand now in picture form or parable form what he's already said in Matthew 24. And he, the parables are in Matthew chapter 25. But I hope that as we examine these parables this morning, that everybody in here is ready to meet the Lord. Because Christ is coming back. And I can't tell you exactly when he's coming back, but I can't tell you exactly when he's not coming back. So we want to be ready. I'm going to do my best to cover the whole chapter of 25 this morning. So we're going to make haste and read a parable and expound it and then read another one. The first verse of chapter 25 in the Gospel of Matthew about the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven 
will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. <clears throat> so there's two main ideas in end times teachings, and that is to be uh, to readiness, the idea of being ready, and then what it looks like to be ready and wait at the same time. And there's exhortations that Jesus gives to us. And we looked at last week, not only do we need to be prepared, but we need to be uh, fulfilling our duty as we're prepared. And he talked about the wise and faithful servant who's continuing in the work of the Lord as he waits, not just uh, like we read about part of the history of the church, the Millerites who were ready, so ready for the for the coming of the Lord that they sold everything, all their possessions. And then because he didn't come, one prophesied they were not ready or prepared to continue to do life. So we've learned that we need to be ready while performing our duty as a good and faithful servant in God's household. That's God's expectation. That's what we want to do as kingdom workers. So, as we continue this idea about what it looks like to wait, Jesus gives us this parable. We read this parable and everybody wants to know what's the oil in the lamps. Because that seems to be the main teaching. You, you need to have the oil because if you don't have the oil, you'll miss out. And so there's all kinds of different speculation about the oil and what it might mean and what you need. We already know what you need for salvation. We already know what you need to be prepared to really understand this parable, we need to understand, travel back a little bit. Well, what is, how does a wedding operate? And what does it mean about the bridegroom and the feast? And what were they doing there to begin with? And we have to understand that to understand why five were wise and why five were foolish. Today, in our culture, the focus of a wedding, of course, is the bride. Here she comes by herself or accompanied by her dad, beautiful dress, all eyes go to the dress, all eyes go to how is she going to wear hair, who is a makeup artist, and you know how beautiful she's going to look in these things. That's, that's kind of the crux or the center of the ceremony. Not so in Jesus' day and culture. Not so much the bride. Important part. But really the emphasis was kind of on the bridegroom. That's where most of the action was. That's where the pursuing took place. 
and the excitement. So eyes were kind of on, well, what's the bridegroom doing? So in that day, the way it worked is that the bridegroom would go from his house to retrieve his bride to her house or wherever she happened to be. And that in and of itself was a ceremony. And only his family members and closest friends were invited for that part of the ceremony. So they would go in a procession through the streets, through the town, whatever, from this place to that place. And they would arrive at the bride's house and they would have a small celebration there. And there would be singing, dancing, what have you. And he, the, the excitement is that he is gone to bring her back into his home so that they can become one flesh. But then the bigger celebration was on the way back to the bridegroom's house because that's when the bigger circle of friends, the ones that were invited, were waiting for that moment so that they could join in the celebration and then they would all go back with great rejoicing to the bridegroom's house and continue the celebration and the ceremony and the partying, just the good times that they would have. So that's the context. That's how it worked. The virgins in this parable, they're waiting because he's gone to her house to retrieve her. So they're waiting. Sometimes the ceremony at the bride's house, it's usually shorter for whatever reason is prolonged. And maybe they're happier than they thought and they can't pull themselves away from that. They're just chatty or whatever it is. But for whatever reason, there are times, and it was known in that culture, <clears throat> that you might be waiting for a while out in the street. This was one of those times. For whatever reason, the celebration went on and on at the bride's house. So all the guests were waiting and waiting and waiting and it grew dark and it got later and later and later. And then finally, the bridegroom and his party began the procession back to his place. Unfortunately, because it had gone on so late, not all in this parable were prepared for that moment. They weren't prepared. Now it's nighttime, so they need their torches, they need their lamps. To see and to celebrate. The foolish virgins realize I'm out. Can I have some of yours? And they're like, no, because then I'll miss out. You need to go buy some. And so they went to try to find some. And by the time they got back, the procession had already taken place. And in this case, the doors were closed to this wedding celebration. It wasn't just like in our weddings today. Just not anybody can come in. There needs to be an invitation there. And so the doors were closed. And the language turns very severe to those foolish virgins. Depart from me. I do not know you. So the idea is that when it comes to waiting for the bridegroom, it may be a short time. And we've already seen that in his warning about the days of Noah. People are just going on with their lives as if nothing's going to happen. Next thing you know, here's the flood. Here's the judgment. And there are a lot of people that were not ready. So it can be very quick. But we don't know it could also be very slow. 
the main teaching here is that believers need to be ready for the long haul in the coming of Christ. Because He may not come in our lifetime. He may not come in the next generation or the generations after that. It's already been quite some time. And so there's a part of our lives that also need to prepare for that, embrace that idea. Yeah, He might come right now. He might come tomorrow. Maybe we'll be driving home from church and there we go. That would suit me just fine. But then again... Only God knows when He's going to come back. So the teaching is be ready for the long haul. There's a way to be ready for the long haul. Peter tells us that the way God looks at time isn't how we look at time. We need to keep that in mind because to us we might be thinking, what's taking you so long? And to him he might be like, well, what are you talking about? But the day is like a thousand years. And then the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, I think that was um, Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2 about the time. And then Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, now, don't don't be tempted to think that, well, God just forgot about us. He's so busy in heaven. He forgot he's supposed to come back and, you know, get us and bring us up. That's not the case. He hasn't forgotten. If there is a delay, it's only for one reason. It's God's gracious heart. He's just waiting if God waits He's just waiting for the loved ones. He's waiting for the elect to come in. He's just, he's just purposely taking his time so that the harvest will be full for the kingdom of heaven. Because once the door shuts, that's it. Paul reminds us that in Romans chapter 2. So we want to think about, well, how does this apply? If, if Jesus is saying to his disciples in order to prepare them, it could be long haul. What kind of changes do we need to make in our lives? Or what does that really mean to us in a practical sense? Because if we, if we put all of our focus and attention on the idea that Christ is coming back very soon, it will alter the way we live and worship. And it does in people's lives. So if Christ is coming back soon, let's just say in the next year, three years, five years, ten years, that's still soon. If we literally believe that within the next ten years, Christ is going to return, what will our lives look like? Well, there's no need to invest in certain things. There's no need to to plan or prepare for certain things. There's no need to think about new chairs in the church. Why would we need new chairs? Because all of the emphasis needs to be on saving the lost. Because you've got ten years to get on the ark of salvation. Or three years or five years. And so we would want to put all of our money, all of our time, all of our resources in proclaiming the gospel and the imminent return of Christ. We wouldn't need to plan for fellowship hall. We wouldn't need to fix the leaks in the roof. We wouldn't need to put vinyl over the siding. We don't need to plan for the long haul if Christ is coming back. But if he isn't coming back at that time, or we don't know, which is the teaching here, then we do need to be strategic. We do need to think about, well, wait a minute. What if he doesn't come back in my lifetime? What does New Covenant Fellowship Church look like? The leaders need to be thinking about this. 
Does that mean the faith needs, if we're going to continue the work of the Lord in the kingdom of God, the faith needs to be passed down. That means our young ones need to be brought up in the faith. That means that as people age and retire from ministry or retire from this world, there needs to be a training in place that replaces these ministries. So it's a long haul mindset. It's a strategic mindset rather than just every penny that comes into the offering. We need to throw it towards evangelism. Wait a minute. If we're going to be here, maybe for a while, we might want to prepare for that. So we might want to have a nest egg and some savings so that the ministry, the money is there for the ministry to continue to take place until the Lord comes back. So there's something to be said in being ready. But if we just preach the message, Jesus is coming back. Then we haven't done our job as disciples. It's more involved than that. It's more complex than that. So in our own lives, it's, it's teaching our children the faith. It's making sure it's continued to be proclaimed. It's making sure there are others to replace the important ministries. It may be planning for an upgrade in the church. It might be having to think about, well, do my children and grandchildren have a place in the church, a place to be married? It might be thinking about the future of the retreats. If they're going to continue and God still has a heart for sanctification and still has a heart for manhood and womanhood, then what are we as a church to do with that? So we have to wrestle with all these things in light of this parable of the ten virgins. Because we could very well be in it for the long haul. It's a little bit like Jesus' parable, uh, the seeds and the sower. You know, some come out and they're real, they grow quickly and they're vibrant and you think, man, this is a great start. And they fizzle out. They get scorched because there's not a deep root. This is a deep root kind of parable. You know, we don't want to just live a surface life because we don't know what next year brings. But we know we need to stay tight with Christ. So what do we need to do in the meantime? To, to grow our roots deep so that we're ready for whatever storm might come. It's a long haul kind of parable. The Apostle Paul instructed uh, Timothy. Again, in a chapter 2 teaching, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Is you want to train faithful men to teach faithful and reliable men. And the idea is that it's just going to be perpetual passing it on passing it down equipping preparing making disciples so thinking strategically and prepared for the long delay that's part of what it means for us to faithfully wait for the return of the lord and then jesus gives another parable it's the parable of the talents beginning in verse 14 and this has to do with uh, productive productivity or productiveness. He says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. Now he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had had the, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground 
and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. But here, you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, will more, will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of So both parables end with very severe words and severe warnings. We have to be ready. We need to be working while we're waiting. And what does this parable teach us that perhaps we don't know about waiting for the Lord? We don't think much, obviously, about slavery in our day. It has a terrible history. Slavery in Jesus' day was a little different, was a little more complex. You had all different facets of servanthood. And not all of it was just manual labor. Uh, Really, some of the slavery would be uh, more comparable today to a boss and kind of an employee situation. You had had, um, servants that were entrusted with incredible amounts of responsibility. Sometimes it was the slaves or the servants that tutored the master's kids. Sometimes the slaves managed the master's money. Sometimes they managed all of the master's assets. I mean, these, were, these weren't just typical labor. So there was that kind of dynamic that happened in Jesus' culture, uh, in the farm industry and so forth. We learn in this parable that the master tasked them or he gave responsibility based on his assessment of their ability. That he didn't give the guy who he thought could handle five just one and vice versa. But based on his wisdom, based on he's the boss and his assessment, he gives according to what he thinks they can handle. That's how he operates. It's according to ability. And today we think of talents as natural gifts and natural abilities. Man, have you ever seen that person play basketball? They are natural at it. Or they are naturally smart, naturally good at math, naturally good at public speaking, whatever it is. We think of it as a uh, 
an ability. But a talent in this parable really is speaking in, in that culture about money. And it's kind of a way, it's a unit of measurement. It's a way to measure things like we might say pounds. So talent is measuring something. It might be a talent of silver. It might be a talent of gold. Uh, for instance, a talent of, if it were a talent of silver in that day, it would equal 6,000 denarii, which in our day would be approximately $800,000. So the first servant gets fat five bags of money. He immediately, he's aggressive, he's anxious, he takes the challenge, he likes it. And he goes, he puts it to work, he buys, he trades, he sells, he invests, whatever he does. But he doubles it, however much he was given. Doubled. Likewise, with the second uh, person who's given two bags of money, also goes out, does what's necessary to double that talent. Put it to work. They're aggressive in some kind of way. They're, they're joyful. They like this challenge that the master had given them. And as a result of that, the master's wealth uh, and stability and presence grows because of the servant's excitement about this. And it wasn't necessarily overnight. They were quick to put their um, money to work. But the master was gone a long time. So this went on for quite some time. And then the master returns and they're so excited to show him what they had accomplished. And you see this relationship here, how delighted they are that they have something more to offer, how delighted he is that he can receive that, that they took joy in it. And he says, enter the master's joy. So there's a there's a unifying rejoicing that takes place. It's a recipro it's reciprocal. I take joy in giving you responsibility and watching you use your, the talent that I gave you. You take joy in giving it. So it's a beautiful scene that's, that Jesus sets up. And it's interesting that the reward is not just um, monetary, but primarily kingdom reward was more responsibility. Now, who would want more responsibility. How can that be a reward? Because I'm, I'm, I'm picturing, thinking about people all the time where they've said, yeah, I got a promotion at work. I got more responsibility, but my paycheck didn't go up a penny. Yeah. And yet, more responsibility is given. So how can there be joy other than the fact that they, these servants love serving the master? They like a challenge. They like for him to be renowned. They like for him to his worth to increase. They see themselves as a part of it. And it's not really they get something out of it as well. It's for him, but they enjoy it. They see their role in all of that. And so when he says, I'm going to put you in charge of even more. It's a true blessing to them. So if you're a leader or you're you're a minister and you think to yourself, I can't put anything else on my plate, and we do need to be careful. But don't be surprised when all these ministry opportunities come your way. And you find yourselves doing a lot of things because if you take joy in making much of God, it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort. And you will have lots of opportunities to do that. Now that's what's going on here. But then we come to this third bloke, the third guy. And his stories, immediately you can tell the difference. He's not excited. Totally different attitude. And a totally different response from the master. 
He starts with one bag because the master figures, well, that's probably all, all I ought to give him based on what I know about him and his abilities. But this guy doesn't look at the master at all in the same way. The master's a hard man. He's scared of him. He gives us the impression, I'm so scared that I might fail you that I didn't do anything with it, but I kept it in a safe place so at least I would have it to give back to you. I didn't do anything with it. I didn't rob it, steal it, take anything out of it, use it for my own means. I just, I just preserved it. So here, you can have it back. It's not worth the risk. Based on the kind of man you are, it's not worth the risk. You come back and, and I failed and I only have half as much. I can just hear you now lighten into me. So that was the attitude there. He was, um, he was slothful, passive. He thought it's just safer, you know, just to not do anything. I'll bury it. That way, no harm done. Here, there's your money back. That's not how the master looked at it. And that's not how the master took it. There was great harm done. Because he calls this guy not just slothful and lazy. You didn't even do anything. You didn't even try. He calls him wicked. How's the wicked get into there? What's so wrong with that? To play it safe. Is it wrong to play it safe? Well, in this case, yeah. Because if you think about the dynamic and the relationships that are taking place, this is a master and he's a servant. And the reason he's wicked and not just being lazy is because he disobeyed the command of the Lord. When you're a servant, you don't get to tell the master what he can do with his money and how he can spend it. If he gives it to you, if he gives you a task, then that's what he expects you to do. He knows there's a risk. This guy refused. He refused to obey. He took it upon himself to decide for his master what's best for the money. But really, it's not at all looking out for what's best for the master. It's looking out what's best for him. I don't feel like it. I don't want it. I don't have any interest in it. It doesn't interest me to bring try, to put any effort in tr- to try to bring joy to you, to expand your kingdom. You give me this thing, I'll just put it over here. I'll give it back to you. There's no relationship. There's no joy. There's no pleasure. It's blatant and flagrant disobedience. This is what it is. And that's why it's wickedness. He's out for himself. And really, he pretends the problem is the harsh master. The problem is his own heart. He doesn't know the master truly. And he gets harsh words. He is sent to a place of darkness for that. So two of them love their jobs. The third one loves himself more than his master. Could really care less about him. So in the first parable, the rebuke is, you weren't prepared. You thought it was too easy to get into the kingdom. You didn't put any effort into it. Yeah, you just brought what you had. And so the bridegroom says, depart from me. I don't know you. If you were truly my friend, if you really wanted to celebrate with me and you were invested in what I'm doing, then you're going to come prepared. And that's true. The things that are important to us, we invest in. We're prepared for. We're not going to miss. And then in this parable, this person was... um, Thought, well, you know, 
it's really so hard to get in the kingdom. You're such a taskmaster, it's not even worth the effort. Why try? D.A. Carson says about this parable, the point is if you're just wanting, if you're just waiting and not doing anything, then you're not improving the master's assets. He said, and that's just unthinkable for a true Christian. It's unthinkable that a true Christian would not be thinking about his master's assets, be thinking about his master's plan, the kingdom plan. Perhaps the plan that Christ gave in when we get there in Matthew 28 about going out. And we've been challenged about thinking about the unreached people groups. That's part of God's plan. That's that's in his heart. It's important to him. And it's unthinkable that what's important to God won't be important to us. And it reveals our hearts that, well, really, I'm just in it for myself or partially in it for God. And there may be harsh words. So we want to be prepared to improve and increase our master's assets. And then lastly, some say scholars say this is a parable. Some say it isn't a parable. I'm not going to go there, but let's read what he has to say in verse 31. The Son of Man, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Now before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life once again ends with harsh words to show that these aren't just bedtime stories. These are real life things. Real life expectations. This is what's going to happen. And it is happening in the kingdom. There are foolish virgins. There are unwise stewards. There are lazy stewards. There are rebellious stewards. And there are also people that are in neglect. And I called this point a, a kingdom of surprises. Because that's really the point here. It's the shock. These people are, some are being led into the kingdom based on doing something they were surprised to hear about. 
And others were being kept out of the kingdom based on not doing things they were surprised to hear about. So it's a kingdom of surprises. And in this, we're no longer waiting. This is the end time. This is when he's come back to judge. And he's actually divided the groups, the people, the believer into unbeliever, faithful servants into those that do not worship and serve God. And they both stand out here. The interesting thing about those that were permitted to get into the kingdom. Now, again, this it's important, by the way, it's a lot of times I think this parable is misused. It's important to care about the hungry. It really is. It's, it's important to care about those that are in need. And a lot of times this parable is taken to say, I, I've even heard that if you're not caring for the poor, you're, you're, you're not going to heaven, period. Because that's how you get into heaven is by doing what Jesus says here. And that becomes, of course, a work salvation. But that's not the point. As good as that is to be kind and generous and so forth. The point is, those that there will be those that get into heaven and those that do not get into heaven. Now, those that get into heaven are surprised because they were doing these things and they didn't even realize that it was that big of a deal to the master. See, I think what's what's neat about this is that, well, they're reading God. You got to picture this now because this is in real life. They're reading the New Testament letters. And they're doing what Christ asked them to do. Of course, we're supposed to be kind to one another. Of course, we're supposed to, if, if my brother or sister needs something to eat or a place to stay, of course, we'll do these things. It was just their reasonable service of worship. They didn't realize that it carried such weight. They're just living life. They're just waiting for the Lord being productive. What a surprise it was when Jesus said, you know, when you gave that person that water that they needed or that food and you filled that belly, you did it to me. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting and more personal. The brothers in this parable, we know by now in Matthew, when Jesus calls somebody my brothers, what's he talking about? He's not just talking about the downcast and the poor. He's talking about his people. Those that he has taken under his wing as Lord and Savior and Master. And he's saying, when you do something like that, we are in such union with Christ. There's such a closeness there that when when a Christian gets a glass of water, when his thirst is quenched, Christ feels it. He's aware of it. And vice versa. When a brother is in need and there has never been an age when a Christian has not been in need. There's never been an age when Christians have not somewhere in the world been experiencing persecution. And yeah, they go hungry. And yeah, they're in prison. And yes, they go naked. And he's saying to neglect that, he also identifies and feels that neglect as if it was him in that situation. So this out of nowhere, this parable that seems to be about just heaven and hell also or taking care of the poor... It teaches this powerful, mysterious union of Christ and his people. It reminds me of Jesus's words to the Apostle Paul when he says, why do you persecute me? And he again, it's a surprise. What do you mean persecute you? Who are you, Lord? You're persecuting my children. You see how personal he's taking this? This is a matter of heaven and hell. 
And so, rejecting Christ, of course, keeps us out of heaven. But neglecting the brothers of Christ, those in need, not being interested, caring about the kingdom mission, carries with it also a sentence. And they get the death penalty. People who thought they were important, it says, will flee the wrath of God. They didn't want anything to do with Him or His people. And now they find themselves wishing that they did. We read in Revelation 6 as we wind down, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They caught on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? I'll close with a poem written a little over a century ago by Bertram Shaddock. He said, I dreamed that the great judgment, I dreamed that the great judgment morning had dawned and the trumpet had blown. I dreamed that the nations had gathered to judgment before the white throne. From the throne came a bright shining angel, and he stood on the land and the sea, and he swore with his hand raised to heaven that time was no longer to be. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The rich man was there, but his money had melted and vanished away. A pauper, he stood in the judgment. His debts were too heavy to pay. The great man was there, but his greatness, when death came, was left far behind. The angel that opened the records, not a trace of his greatness could find. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost foretold of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. The moral man came to the judgment, but self-righteous rags would not do. The men who had crucified Jesus had passed off as moral men too. The soul that had put off salvation, not tonight, I'll get saved by and by. No time now to think of religion. At last. They had found time to die. And oh, what a weeping and wailing as the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed, but their prayer was too late. D.A. Carson says Jesus is coming back. And even if he does not come back in our lifetime, we will meet him for we will die and we will give an account. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and grace and faith are never alone. So we've spent two chapters. We've spent many weeks together as the family of God, as brothers and sisters of Christ. And Jesus has spoke to us in His Holy Word. And He has said, be ready. And He has said, stay busy in kingdom things as you wait for Me. Work while you wait. And be prepared. Perhaps it will be a long delay. And be invested in the Master's kingdom, in the Master's plan, in the Master's...
purposes and His assets. And know that you are one with Christ. And that all that you do in Him will be rewarded. May God bless the preaching of His Word.